Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Politics Plus Media 101 listeners. Today, we are doing another economic deep dive on issues that are macro in nature, current standing U.S. economy, future, and also some U.S.-China analysis from Noah Smith. He is currently a writer at Substack.com. You can find his Substack at noahpinion.substack.com. That is N-O-A-H-P-I-N-I-O-N.substack. He's a former Bloomberg columnist and finance professor. So, Noah, we, we got to thank you uh, for joining us today before the football games. And we want to start with a really easy question to, to kind of outline the, t- the, the discussion we're going to have uh, before we get into anything too deep. We recently had a U.S. Air Force General's Memo Week saying that there might be a direct conflict between China and the U.S. in a couple years now. And I saw that you were recently in Taiwan. I've been. I, I love the area. But for folks that understand the relationship between China and Taiwan, they are really intertwined economically from all various types of manufacturing, including the chip stuff. Do you think that a direct hot war conflict between China and Taiwan is likely? And what role do you think the economic relationship has in trying to prevent that type of conflict? Well, I'm not an expert in you know actual conflict, likelihood of conflict. You know, I didn't think Putin would invade Ukraine. I thought he was smart enough to not do that. So I'm not the person to ask about whether or not there will actually be a war. I I mean, the experts seem to think it's likely. I would say that, that you know, sort of proclamations that it's going to happen in 2025 are probably too, uh, you know, uh, certain. But, you know, uh, another another officer said 2023 was when he expected it. I think that that's not the expectation now generally. So I don't really know. I mean, it would be a big deal. And it's obviously a, a possibility. It's a strong possibility. It's something that a lot of people on, on all sides have talked about. And to disbelieve it and discount it and think, ah, they'll never be so stupid as to do that. That is a historical mistake that people make again and again. So you see, um, for example, uh, you know, the the great illusion, uh, Norman Angel, uh, before World War One said, it's just really stupid for countries to fight wars against each other. Like it's just dis- purely destructive and will just hurt all of them. And he was correct. And they did it anyway, <laughs> because, you know, countries don't always do what's in their best economic interests or best military and diplomatic interests. Countries make mistakes. I mean, you can't look at, you can't look at pre-World War I Germany and say, this is a country that, that just did everything optimally. They, they didn't maximize, they didn't optimize, they did stupid stuff and it turned out badly. Anyway, so so I don't know whether this is going to happen, but it's something we have to plan for, we have to think about, and uh, you know that that has to shape our policy in our world right now. I want to get your takes on the state of the U.S. economy. We recently spoke with Michael Strain of AEI about the debt limit, and he also said that inflation, the hike in interest rates, uh, and other factors mean that we are almost certainly headed for a recession in the U.S. in 2023. What are your views on this take of recession inevitability almost, and also the short-term state of the U.S. economy in general here? Well, economists are bad at predicting recessions until we're already in one, and we're not already in one. You know, the, the labor market looks great. Consumption is holding up. Investment is holding up. There's really nothing. There no. There's no um, nothing that indicates we're in a recession right now. In fact, if anything, we were more in a recession at the beginning of 2022 
when GDP dipped a little bit and, um, you know, but, but not now, uh, you know, things on the economic side look fine right now. There are some indicators, especially something called the yield curve that are traditionally associated with recessions. They're traditionally predictors of recession that are now predicting recession. Um, usually the yield curve, so the yield curve inverts. And for people who don't know what that means, that means that long-term interest rates become lower than short-term interest rates, which is weird because it means you get paid more to hold money for a short time than for a long time. Uh, that's odd. You know, and there's a couple of reasons why that could happen. One reason is because you expect the economy itself to crash, which would result in, you know, lower interest rates because a slow economy means that just interest rates aren't as high. Uh, also, um, you could expect the Fed to cut interest rates to fight a recession, which would also lower interest rates. So there's there's two reasons why you might expect lower interest rates to be lower in the future than now, uh, and that to such a degree that it inverts the yield curve. And that's basically what we've seen now. And I think that the belief in these leading indicators is sometimes a bit magical. Like there's not necessarily uh, a, a direct link between why why one might, you know, B might follow A here. Like there's not, we don't know why, like a, an inverted yield curve doesn't cause recessions. It's an, it's an indication that people expect a recession for some reason. And you have to sort of assume that people have some sort of knowledge of economic facts on the ground that leads them to suspect, to expect a recession. Uh, it's, and it's, and it's not a slam dunk. It doesn't necessarily mean people expect recession. What it could mean in this case is that people expect interest rates to come down as the Fed conquers inflation without causing recession. That is consistent with an inverted yield curve because it means interest rates will come down, meaning that long-term interest rates could be lower than, than short-term interest rates, but they will come down because inflation's gone, not because the economy's bad. And so that's a possibility. So it's possible we'll just sail through with disinflation, meaning that inflation goes away uh, and the economy's fine. Uh, that's still a possibility. So I would say that there's no, there's no clear reason to think that a recession is imminent in the United States, but there is also no clear reason to think a recession is not happening. What goes up must come down. Tech's supercharged trajectory of growth, record stock highs, and aggressive hiring during the pandemic now in a downturn. From plummeting tech stock valuations to an accelerating wave of layoffs and hiring freezes across the industry, the belt tightening in tech is sending ripples through the public markets, which are already grappling with recession fears and ongoing global supply chain issues. Here's a quick roundup of just some of the most high-profile tech names caught up in the turbulence over the past few months. Meta has plans to slow hiring of engineers this year by at least 30% as it weeds out poor performers across its teams. Google, Apple, Microsoft, and Snap also reportedly pausing or substantially slowing hiring and cutting back on spending. And Twitter laying off 30% of its talent acquisition team amid its own hiring freeze. In June, Elon Musk's super bad feeling about the economy led to hiring pauses and job losses at Tesla with a little over 200 employees let go. So, no, I thought that maybe we could talk about one of the sectors where we really are seeing a slowdown. You know, you said that we're not in a recession uh, economy wide, but we're definitely seeing a slowdown in one of our flashiest uh, and most widely covered and discussed sectors, which is the tech sector. Uh, lately, there's been stuff in the news about all the layoffs. We've seen that a lot of the VC money investment is, is drying up. 
uh, some of the trendiest and most popular up and coming firms are really in trouble. And I just kind of want to get your take on what's really going on. How similar is this to, for example, the dot-com bubble in the 1990s? Is it really a bubble popping or is this something on a little bit smaller scale, the slowdown that we're seeing now in that sector? Well, I think it's um, it's a more moderate. I think, yes, it's a bubble popping. It's more moderate uh, in both like size and uh, and severity than the 2001 was. What's interest, One interesting fact is that venture investment only in 2021 regained its heights of 2000. So that gives you an idea of just how nuts the dot-com bubble was. It was just massive amounts of money were being thrown at everything to a degree that now is almost incomprehensible. The other thing is that this time, so in the dot-com bubble, this money was being thrown at companies with absolutely no uh, revenues. Um, They didn't even know how they were going to make money, much less make money profitably. This time, there was like almost very little money was being thrown at companies without revenues. Seed stage funding was not, you know, that that's that, but that wasn't the biggest deal. Um, in fact, seed stage funding is still going strong. It's the one part of tech that has really held up. If you want to start a company uh, right now, it's actually still pretty easy to do that. But um, a lot more money was being thrown at, so some money was being thrown at unprofitable companies. So you saw Uber, for example, has never made a profit and people just continue to throw money at it. And there's a number of these companies that are unprofitable, but having no profits and having no revenues is different because uh, having no profits means your focus can can also mean you're focused on expansion. And maybe that expansion doesn't plan out, doesn't doesn't uh, you know play out the way that you thought it would or hoped it would, but that still means that you make revenue, like you're a business that someone actually pays for. That's less crazy than the dot com boom. And in fact, a lot of the big uh, bus we've seen are in public tech companies that are pretty large in scale. So you look at some of the biggest losers and you see things like Shopify, Coinbase, Peloton, um, a lot of these, and also Netflix and and Facebook, now Meta. Those are all like pretty big established companies with real business models and not the kind of thing you saw during the dot-com boom. And so um, I would say that this is a milder reset. And I think that that is one of several reasons why we have not yet seen the crash in tech filter through to the general economy. Like the general economy is basically ignoring what's going on in tech. Do we have a name for this new boomlet? It's not as significant as a dot-com bubble. What should we call this one? Is it the... Um... Well, I, I don't know. I, I was just calling it the second tech boom. If you think of a better one. I mean, it's, it's, the, um, it's the social mobile boom. Yeah. Uh, but it also had stuff like crypto. So essentially, the way I see it is that this is this is just the second internet boom. That after you know in in the in the you know 80s and 90s we built the infrastructure for the internet the telecom stuff we built the the digital infrastructure the web right but then in um in the 2000s and 2010s we built additional digital infrastructure in the form of social media which is easier to use than the web and then we and, and apps and then we also built um the smartphone you know and the and the physical infrastructure of of telecoms, but but especially this, this this thing, the smartphone that makes Apple all its profits, that was a boom in and of itself. We it turbocharged the internet. It gave everyone who didn't have the internet that now had the internet via smartphones it increased the hours of the day we could use the internet because you could carry it around in your pocket, and it made it much easier to use with social media, so that even all the normies could now shitpost and uh, and you know do all the internet stuff, which of course wrecked the culture of the internet completely. But uh, because now you you had people who are not smart and tech savvy people just like 
yelling their like standard political crap all over every social media site. And that sucked, but it, it powered a lot of companies. And I think that, um, this is not what powered crypto, but it is what powered uh, a lot of big tech and a lot of, uh, a lot of startups was basically just mobile plus social. And that booms over. Like we we're done where the internet has been built. We will, you know, we'll, we'll get slightly better things. It's like, you know, we'll get like, just like we get better roads and somewhat better cars over time. But once you build all the roads and everybody has a car, that's done. That's a, that's a stable industry. That's not a growth industry anymore. And I think people maybe we're, we're paying growth multiples, growth industry multiples for some of these stocks uh, after it had become an established industry that is not a true growth industry um, or is a, a much lower growth industry. And so I think that that's really what happened. And it was revisions of those sort of like, oh, well, tech equals growth. And like, oh, no, we built the internet. That's done. No, and looking for kind of common themes or threads across this recent boomlet, this recent, uh, you call it second internet bubble. Uh, one thing that I kind of kept coming back to was this idea of disruption. Um, I don't have uh, very vivid memories of the dot-com boom, so I don't know if this how unique this was and how different it was from the attitude in the 1990s. But I remember over the last 10 years, it seemed as though investors and the media that were covering the tech industry kept on looking for these so-called unicorns, and they were especially focused on disrupting incumbent industries and current industries. And looking at examples like Uber and Netflix, these were companies that came in and kind of screwed with the architecture of an industry that already existed and had profitability and introduced um, these shortcuts and, and cutarounds that undermined the way that those industries operated without themselves really proposing a credible path to profitability, right? Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm wondering is, you know, that was always conceived as being disruption. And sometimes it felt like it was disruption for its own sake. And at the same time, we've noticed that financially, that is a bit of a dubious proposition. We've also seen the political and social attitudes about the tech industry shift, where the idea of social disruption that comes out of tech firms is coming into disrepute. So do you think that this whole concept of disruption is something that is going to be done away with in parallel to this current tech slowdown, you think that we'll kind of discard and discredit that entire concept and look instead for a different way of developing this industry? Well, maybe. So I, I think that there's disruption in multiple senses of the word. So Clay Christensen is the business prof who came up with the idea of technological disruption, which is basically how a tech takes over from an older tech. And the way it does it is first by um, going after uh, small fry customers like um, cheap, low-end markets, and then eventually muscling into and moving into the high-end uh, markets, and why the high-end incumbents aren't basically can't uh, stop this because they're so focused on their existing kind of high-end customers. Now, that's the, that's the classic Clay Christensen idea of disruption. And it's not at all what you see with Uber, right? It's not at all, um, you know, Uber started out being a very premium service, very top-end service. Um, it's not what you see with Airbnb either. Th those gig economy companies were not disruptive in the Clay Christensen sense. They were disruptive in the sense that like people basically took the word disruption and decided that it meant any sort of uh, competition, any sort of like new entrance to the market that created change in an industry by changing up the players by, you know, now first you had taxis, now you'll have Uber. First you had hotels, now you'll have Airbnb. 
um, just basically taking a teched up version of the same thing and competing with the incumbents. And I think people took disruption to mean that. And I recall someone at one point wrote that Uber disrupts transportation the same way that someone would disrupt pet ownership by kicking their neighbor's dog. And while I don't necessarily think that that's an appropriate metaphor, I do think that the Clay Christensen disruption will not go away. That will stay. New technologies will, uh, you know, displace older technologies and they will continue to do it by starting off by going for the low end segments of the market and moving up market. That's going to continue, right? It's, um, it's continuing maybe with AI. I don't know, but, but we shouldn't get rid of that. We shouldn't, uh, deride that or laugh at that kind of disruption. But the idea that any sort of, you know, slapping a, 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 you know, app with a nice little icon on some sort of slightly softwared up version of a traditional service like Uber, the idea that that represents disruption is going to die. And I think probably already has died. That's called you, you came, you went into a market and tried to compete with the existing players. And then sometimes you win and sometimes you don't win. And then that, but it's not, it's not disruption in the technological sense. Anyway, so I, I think that we have to, as a buzzword, it may die, but as a, as a business prof concept, it will not die. So I saw one of your recent articles, no, we're going to stay in the tech sector here again, noopinion.substack.com was on a court case that maybe folks aren't focusing on like they should be. And it's the Google antitrust case. So I do want to get into the politics of tech and what we're seeing on Capitol Hill. But before we do that, I want to get into antitrust toward these tech companies more broadly. And maybe we can use this case, for example, as a prism to to view things through. So there has been public outcry by a lot of folks that don't understand the tech industry and the ins and outs, like myself, for example, uh, saying these companies are too big. We need to focus on enforcing antitrust law. If we don't have the mechanisms to enforce antitrust law, we need to pass new a- antitrust legislation. And now Google is being looked at as a monopoly, and I believe it's ad business. So generally speaking, are these tech companies, the Googles, the Apples, the Metas, are they too big and are they stifling competition? Or is there some other way that, that we should perceive this? I think there's a number of angles to this. My suspicion is that the way these things actually get resolved is that the populace and also elites, like in the legal profession, whatever, decide that some companies are get, just getting too powerful and challenging the, the power of the state. And so they just smack them down, whether that that's basically like standard oil bell, that it's not so much about, oh, you're monopolizing, you're raising prices, you're cutting wages too much, blah, blah, blah. That's the economic justification. And economists think of, of monopoly that way and antitrust that way. But then uh, I think that for a lot of people, there's this nebulous notion of power and just sort of institutional slap fights. And I think that, you know, basically breaking up big companies or or chastising big companies like Microsoft is chastised is a way that the state uh, reassures itself that it's still in control of society, that it still has a monopoly on power. And the way that um, that voters convince themselves that they're something that they have direct input in, i.e. the government, is still more powerful than something they don't have direct input in, i.e. a corporation. So I can vote for my leaders. Um, I can't vote for uh, you know, tech execs. But that said, uh, the folk, so, so I think there are some antitrust issues in big tech. One of those is Apple's control of the app store, but which in, in the world is not a monopoly, but in America is, you know, has well over 50% market share. 
And essentially, any app that comes out has to come out in the app store or die if it's a mobile app. And so that does create the conditions for monopoly. And Apple does um, charge a 30% basically tax on in-app purchases of things in the app store. And Apple just slaughtered Facebook. You know, everyone thought Facebook was this big monopoly. One day, Apple decides to start charging them full price and Facebook shares just fall off a cliff because the actual platform is not Facebook. The actual platform is Apple. And so I think that, that that's a um, that's a reason to take a look at Apple as a as a um, a monopoly player there. Uh, Google is a slightly different story because Google's not a monopoly. Google is Google's sort of a monopoly in 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 one kind of ad tool, uh, DoubleClick, and they they bought a company which has ninety percent market share. So in, in in the case of websites selling ad space, they are a monopoly, but not in most segments of the ad market. Uh, and their famous ad exchange has only about half the, um, you know, the market. And if you'd think if there were a network effect, it would operate most strongly on the ad exchange. They do have a very dominant position in search, but that's not really what the DOJ is complaining about. It's uh, anti-competitive practices. So remember, the antitrust doesn't require you to have a dominant market position. It just requires you to have um, the ability to shut out competitors with whatever market position you do have. Google has three tools all of which have pretty big market share, three tools. It has the tools that uh, that websites use to sell ad space. It has the tools that advertising companies use to bid on ad space. And then it has the exchange where the those two tools will meet and agree on a price. And it can use its uh, position in one of those markets to basically um, heavily influence, if not compel people, to use the other. Um, and so that is that could that could be an anti-competitive practice, depending on whether or not that actually works. So this is for the lawyers and people to decide. You know that this is for the courts to decide. But if they do decide that Google has been, um, you know, restraining competition by uh, using its position in one segment to force everyone to give it a dominant position in the other segment. Um, using the ad tools to force people to use the exchange, using the exchange to force people to use the tools. Blah blah blah. Um, then it could, uh, then it really could run afoul of antitrust. In fact, my guess is that's why we don't have iTunes anymore, because you know, because of the 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 cross pressure between iTunes and Apple devices. That doesn't mean that breaking up Google is a good idea. In fact, I kind of think it's probably not a good idea. I think instead they should just uh, ban specific anti-competitive practices like they did for Microsoft in two thousand one which worked quite well for Microsoft and Microsoft is still one of the most valuable companies in the world. It has, you know, instead of sitting there and just milking its monopoly position in, uh, you know, like office apps, instead it, it diversified, right? It went into cloud stuff. It went into a bunch of other stuff. It still makes money off of, you know, windows and office and Excel and all that stuff. It still makes money off that, but it makes money off a lot of other stuff too. And I think ultimately it was good for Microsoft. It was a healthy thing to get specific anti-competitive practices slapped down by the Justice Department. And it could be a healthy thing for Google in the long run if that's what the courts decide. Do you believe that Google, Amazon, and Facebook all are monopolies by your definition? Oh, I, let's put it this way. They are huge, they have market dominance, and they behave like monopolists. And that's a big part of the reason they need to be broken apart. Look at look at what happened with Facebook. I don't know about you, but a lot of people are really uneasy about how Facebook handles their data. Yep. So along comes WhatsApp, right? And WhatsApp says, tell you what we'll do. 
will give a whole lot better protection for your privacy. And you watch a bunch of people move from Facebook over to WhatsApp. Now, that puts Facebook in the position of doing one of two things. Either they have to get better to meet the competition. That's what a good, robust market is all about. Or if you're already huge and dominate the field, just buy the competition and take their data. Facebook, of course, chose to do the latter. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. That's, that is not furthering competition. If you're your regular conservative, your regular liberal voter, you probably support breaking up big tech. But ultimately, realistically speaking, the leadership of both parties is extremely close to big tech. So Nancy Pelosi didn't want to do anything. She was getting influenced by Zoe Lofgren, who is, uh, you know, very, very um, close to big tech. And then Kevin McCarthy's lead lobbyist, Jeff Miller, uh, lead advisor, excuse me, Jeff Jeff Miller is one of the lead lobbyists for big tech uh, to the point where he was actually calling members of the GOP last session of Congress, 117th, threatening them. And these members didn't know if the threats were coming from the lobbyist or McCarthy himself. However, when investors are looking at these industries like technology and they see a political desire from voters to do something when the dynamics and leadership change, is there an impact on investment in this sector that comes from speculation that there will be wide-ranging political actions uh, that ultimately have extremely negative consequences on the industry? Or is that too forward-looking? Investors don't really worry about this, and this game is in elections and confined to campaigning. Well, in this case, I would have to say I don't really know. Yeah, I don't know, to be honest. I I can imagine it going both ways. So, for example, Intel rode its monopoly, not monopoly, rode its its position, its extremely profitable position in server ch- high-end server chips for years and years and years and made, I think, a total of about a quarter trillion dollars in profit over like two decades. It's an absolutely huge amount of profit over, you know, and, and Intel was just incredibly valuable. And then it didn't, uh, it didn't innovate. So it missed, it completely missed the low power chip Revolution, people put lower performance, but more energy efficient chips and smartphones because you care about overheating more than you care about, uh, you know, clock speed. And so they missed that. They missed the foundry business. Uh, TSMC built high end stuff using tools that Intel paid to develop. Intel paid all that money to ASML to develop these high end tools. And guess who ended up using it? Not them. TSMC ended up using that. And so TSMC made chips for everybody using the tools that Intel paid to develop. Um, and uh, and TSMC got the foundry business and um, is now, you know, just clearly ahead of Intel in terms of making chips. And then finally, Intel missed the AI chips. So NVIDIA is ahead of Intel. So NVIDIA, ARM, and TSMC all passed Intel in these important segments because Intel was so complacent. And if you read the book Chip War, which is a really great book, it'll tell you all about this. And Intel was so complacent that they just missed all these technological revolutions and they got disrupted in the true sense. So if you want... If you want to know how disruption will continue to be a thing, that's how Intel got disrupted by TSMC, by ARM, by NVIDIA. And uh, and so Intel sort of considered a dying company now because their big segment was just so damn profitable. Now, if you think about Google and Apple, 
do we want those companies riding their dominance in existing sectors for 20 years? Does that help us technologically? Or do we want to force them to use their massive cash piles to invest in other things? So Google's been investing heavily in AI. In fact, Google publishes more AI papers than any university in the world. And that's pretty cool. So Google is sort of the Bell Labs of AI. But um, it would be cool if Google would actually try to develop that into business lines of some sort, like Microsoft is trying to do with OpenAI, instead of simply to use it as a curiosity or some like fun thing they do because they make infinite money from their monopoly. And so, so it's, it's possible that, that forcing Google to diversify their business lines by making it l- harder for them to ride this one very profitable segment forever that that will be good for Google and good for investment. It's also possible it'll be bad. Uh, so I think that with Bell Telephone, you saw a really bad outcome where the United States forced Bell Telephone to break up. So in 1956, we made an, uh, an agreement with Bell. We said, we'll let you stay a monopoly in telecom, but you have to freely and cheaply license all the results of Bell Labs. And Bell said, okay. And they proceeded to invent all the awesome stuff that makes our modern world work and license it very cheaply and freely and drive technological progress forward. Then we said, okay, never mind. That deal's off. We're going to break you up. And so we broke them up. Bell Labs died. Um, and we were no longer a leader in telecom innovation. And guess what? All of those hyper-competitive players went bust in the dot-com bust. Europe briefly took over, but then who really took over was China's Huawei, which is state-supported. <laughs> and, you know, our our state, big state-supported, incredibly highly innovative company with all the awesome scientists and blah, blah, blah. We just broke them up for antitrust reasons. Right. And then guess who won? China's state supported company just came in and won. And so it would be very, very stupid if we were, you know, Google's this leader in AI. It would be very stupid if we broke up Google only to see China become the leader in AI as a result, the way Huawei became the leader in telecoms. And so that's um, that's why I would be wary of breaking up Google. But I would at the same time want to push Google toward uh, you know, developing more real business lines with AI instead of just treating it as, you know, various, a collection of white elephant projects. So we're hitting on uh, semiconductor chips, we're hitting on telecommunications, and I think it's a great chance to pivot to uh, US-China relations and start out with a rather broad topic in, in question for you. I have a question for you guys first, though. Yes. Are y'all Canadian? <laughs> Close, I guess. We're both huh. from New Hampshire. Wow, because so New Hampshire people must have similar accents because you guys say like about Justin has that. I, I don't think that I do. My family are from New York, so I think it's, okay. it's just Justin. But Justin's up there. Um do you remember uh the Canuck letter? Do you guys know about the Canuck letter? No. Um this was back I think it was when Richard Nixon was running and he forged a letter that his opponent wrote that said we we hate the people in maine and new hampshire there's they're full of canucks dirty canucks dirty <laughs> and it was it was like a forged letter to try to make it look like his opponent had this prejudice against people from northern new england and that's that's justin <laughs> nice well for once i approve of nixon's uh, dirty tricks because that's funny all right let's get back to the point u.s china <laughs> yes u.s china what attracts me most about China's five-year plan is the tremendous commitment to a low-carbon economy and ultimately to a sustainable energy economy. The, in, the, in the five-year plan, China is committed to reach peak carbon emissions uh, sooner than 2030 and to uh, be uh, have a sustainable energy economy by 2060. These are very aggressive goals, and I think they're great goals. 
Um, and uh, I, I wish more countries actually had the, these goals. I'm very confident about Tesla's future in China. Uh, the Chinese economy, I think, is going to do extremely well over the next decade and uh, will become the biggest economy in the world. And it's also committed to a sustainable energy future. And Tesla is doing both of those things. So we're, we're building uh, cars. We have um, China, I think, long term will be uh, our biggest market, both where we make the most number of vehicles and where we have the most number of customers. I would like to strike an optimistic note and say that I'm very confident that the future of China is going to be great and that China is headed towards being the, the biggest economy in the world uh, and a lot of prosperity in the future. And this five-year plan is going to be a part of making that prosperity happen. Even back when I was uh, working in Congress as an agriculture trade advisor, China was a big threat, right? They were purchasing Smithfield and everybody on the conservative side was freaking out. President Obama's like, no, 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 don't worry about it. We'll have a CFIUS review. We'll rubber stamp that CFIUS review. Blah, 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 blah. And ultimately, China had been building, uh, buying up land and, and a bunch of other things. However, the, the mainstream narrative is for the last decade that many economists, pundits, political analysts have been hewing to is that China will certainly 100% take over the United States as the global economic power. But Noah, Mm -hmm. we've seen massive policy failures that are starting to come home to roost for China. So obviously, the one child policy is an example. Zero COVID is another example. Revised uh, projections of the Belt and Road Initiative and just the negative impact it's had on foreign relations for China and a lot of these quote-unquote investment partners. Have reports of the demise of the United States been overly exaggerated? Well, of course. I mean, the United States uh, is just a far more effective country than, than almost anyone gives it credit for. People talk about the war on cancer. We, you know, <laughs> war on cancer, we didn't win that one. We did, man, because like cancer deaths have massively decreased. Uh, war on poverty. <laughs> that failed. No, it didn't. Poverty is massively, massively decreased and continues to decrease in America as a direct result of those policies. War on terror. <laughs> that failed. Okay, where's Al-Qaeda now? Where's ISIS now? <laughs> like we, we lost the war on drugs, but that's because we didn't have morality on our side. Drugs have the, the better cause, I feel. Um, but then the, the, most of these, we, we succeed, you know, we didn't, we didn't succeed in turning Afghanistan into a liberal democracy with a skeleton fo- occupation force, but that was never going to happen. We were really just there to get bin Laden. And after we got bin Laden, nobody wanted to take the PR hit of pulling out of Afghanistan until Biden was just like, screw it. I'm old. I'll do it. And so that's, that's what happened. The America is extremely effective country. And our state capacity is very high. We built the mRNA vaccines when China couldn't. Um, we distributed those mRNA vaccines, except anti-vaxxers didn't want to take them. But everyone else got it very easily. Um, we, this this supply chain, China couldn't even build the damn things. We, uh, all the supply chain hurdles that we thought, like the nanolipid particles, we're not going to be able to manufacture enough of those. We can't vaccinate everybody. Bam, we just killed it. Um, that was a Canadian company, by the way, for any secret Canucks out there. Um, so then, yeah, so, so America is extremely effective and, and recent, you know, recent years have proven our effectiveness. I mean, um, you know, how's, how's Russia's army doing against our surplus equipment that we, that instead of decommissioning and throwing in the garbage, we sent it to Ukraine where, you know, some in short order, it's blowing up everything the Russians have. And it's like, okay, so America doesn't suck. So rumors of America's ineffectual suckiness are, are 
very exaggerated. We have some main problems. We have a very, very difficult time with land use. NIMBYism um, is baked into all our policies. We just, we have a, a lot of trouble building because of our land, like broken land use system. And, uh, and we have a problem with healthcare. Our healthcare costs too much. And uh, we have a crappy healthcare system. So we've got some crappy things in America, but overall we're a highly effective country and people need to realize that. And then, but when you talk about China, uh, you're talking about some of the bad decisions China made and it did, uh, you know, it, it screwed up real estate, it screwed up tech, it screwed up uh, Belt and Road, it screwed up COVID, and it screwed up uh, sort of the quasi-alliance with Russia, the access with Russia. And yes, those are all big mistakes. And I, I, I blame a lot of this on Xi Jinping himself, although it's obviously not, you can't just blame it on one guy. There was obviously an institutional culture that was very insular that, you know, just assumed that after these decades of fast growth, China could do no wrong, blah, blah, blah. But, um, but you know, Xi, Xi Jinping being this sort of not very bright, but very conservative and passionately conservative kind of boomer guy, uh, that, that, that's not the kind of guy you want to give absolute power in a country. And they did because that's why their system is not so great because it tends to give, eventually you will give absolute power to an absolute dork. And that's what happened. So, um, but that doesn't mean that China is crippled or China is like vanishing or blah, blah, blah. This is a speed bump for China. This is not, uh, you know, and it, and it exposes the fact that their system was never as good as ours, but what they, they do have scale. It's, a mid-income country. It's a medium effectiveness country. It is not a complete shambles like Putin's Russia, but it is also not a highly effective country like South Korea or Germany. Instead, it is a medium effectiveness country of enormous scale. It's four times our size. The, the, the size difference between us and them is about the same as the size difference between Ukraine and Russia. And so there's absolutely no way that we'll be able to balance China alone. We are you know, America the Great is not that great. We're not that big. We're 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 good, but we're not that big. Um, we need to start thinking of ourselves as a smallish country um, in relation to China, or maybe a medium-sized country, not as this gigantic country, which we're not. Um, we need allies. We have already got Japan as an ally. Um, we've got some small allies in the region. We really, if we're going to balance China, we need India as an ally. Uh, because it, India is also four times our size. In fact, India is now the most populous country in the world. Honestly, we've been pretty disrespectful of India and dismissive uh, over the years. Um, we didn't embrace them as a nuclear power for far too long. We uh, ignore them in trade stuff too much, and we uh, and we've we've treated Indian immigrants very restrictively. We've kept too many of them out. We've made it far too hard for Indians to come work and live here, and that has caused some resentment justifiable resentment among Indian elites. Um, and we've supported uh, Pakistan too much, including uh, if, um, if you want to talk about uh, Nixon, uh, supporting Pakistan and the genocide in Bangladesh. And um, we, we gave tacit support to them because they were, Pakistan was our Cold War ally. So we looked the other way as they committed genocide, or at least a very large mass killing of Bangladeshis. We need to be doing more. We need to learn how to respect other countries more than we do. No, there's quite a bit to talk about. One thing that um, certainly stood out to me, you're talking about 1971, the Bangladesh Independence War. I'm surprised at how many people aren't aware of this, but I'm expecting, and I think we all are in the next year or two, there's going to be an occasion to uh, reconsider Henry Kissinger's legacy, if you know what I mean. And uh, I'm sure this will be something that will certainly come up then. 
one thing that, you know, it's a little bit away from some of the macro stuff that we're talking about on the global scale. But one thing that I could tell that you're quite passionate about is this land use issue. I, I lived for eight years in the United Arab Emirates, and they build things so quickly, unbelievably quickly. And that's something you can do when you can rule by edict. You have very few environmental regulations, and you have uh, a lot of money. But, you know, I was living there until the pandemic. I came back to the United States two and a half years ago. I went back there recently for the World Cup, and I saw that even just in the two years that I've been away, there have been entire new neighborhoods that have been constructed in a city that I thought that I knew so well. I'm walking around you know, my old home city, and I'm seeing things that I'd never seen before because they're building things that quickly. And you know, the United States, we have a lot of financial resources to construct things, but there does seem to be so much red tape and that you know, putting an extra lane on a road is 10 years of litigation. And I've noticed people such as yourself are very passionate about this issue and more and more attention is being brought to it. I'm wondering how much potential could we really unlock if we address this problem? But also, are you seeing any actual political momentum to addressing it? Because we're seeing lots of people on social media and in editorials talking about the issue. But I have yet to, at least myself, observe many politicians take it on as a cause celebra to address. Uh, yes, we're seeing we're seeing political momentum for sure, but it's not it hasn't built to the requisite level yet. So we're seeing it start we're seeing it start to build. Um, we're seeing some things being done. We saw California has taken more action on promoting housing in the last you know two or three years than it had in the previous forty, and so that's really it, you know the housing promotion in California is getting to be a big deal, and in terms of national stuff. People don't want to see the IRA money all get unspent because everything, you know, all the transmission lines are still in the queue and like nobody will let people build a solar plant in their backyard and blah, blah, blah. And so anger over this will increase and will continue to build the political momentum. So I think we're still in the stage of like people are getting angry, but we need but we need people to get angrier. We're talking about building these international coalitions to kind of contain China's rise or address the challenges that China poses, the global order and so on. I think there's really kind of one central question to all of this. And the question is about what is really the nature of the containment? What's the appropriate nature of the containment? And I think on one side, we've got the idea of kind of a broad-based, multi-sector, across-the-board containment effort on China, where we are less selective. And we say, every different sector, every different issue, we want to put pressure on China. But then there's another school that's more selective, and it's more about, look, we don't need to have an across-the-board, Cold War-style, anti-China posture. We can recognize areas where there's going to be constructive engagement, but we want to dial in on specific aspects and sectors where China really does pose a challenge. And this is maybe semiconductor chips, which we've been talking about. Which of these two schools are, are you in? Do you think that we want to adopt this broad across the board containment effort? Do you think that it's really more about dialing in on some specific issues and continuing to work with China as a partner on a lot of different areas? Well, we're not, we're not really going to work with China as a partner on anything. Um, when our interests are aligned as on climate change, we'll probably work in the same direction independently. So I would say that the idea of China as a partner either has gone or, or has to go because that's not a thing that's going to happen soon. And that ship has sailed. That could have happened. But it was primarily China's choice to not be a partner with us. We actually wanted that to happen for a long time. 
Um, we kept talking about join the rules-based global blah, blah, blah. China could be, could simply, you know, work within the institutions that, you know, the the victorious World War II powers set up after World War II and eventually dominated, dominated those institutions through sheer size and then become the first among equals as, as we long were. And China could have done that. Instead, they chose not. They, they were like, no, we're going to, we're going to oppose the global order because the global order is somehow inherently dominated by America, which it's not. They were wrong about that, but that was a mistake. But um, they decided that. And after they decided that, the ship has sailed. So at this point, the only reason to, to dream of this like constructive partnership with China is to avoid having to be afraid of what conflict will entail. But uh, when we think about how important maritime trade is to the global economy, so much trade going through the South China Sea and the Malacca Strait, I mean, to have lines of communication and contact on uh, security issues are going to be really important, aren't they? We don't want to completely cut off contact and, and degrade our trust. We had contact with the Soviet Union in the Cold War. And right now, everybody sees this conflict in the, um, you know, in, in the Pacific and in the Indian Ocean coming uh, from a long way away. We see this conflict coming. That doesn't mean we'll have to have that conflict. We can step back from the brink, but it means that these efforts toward conflict do not constitute partnership or cooperation in any way. Well, we are unequivocally an economic partner with China. In 2020, we had $615 billion worth of trade. So uh, at the end of the day, you know, any type, some folks that aren't really nuanced compare China to Soviet Union. It's a completely different ballgame for a number of reasons. One, the, the economic trade that I just mentioned. Two, there are differences of opinion in the West on how to approach China as a country and specifically the containment issue, where very few want to go for full containment. You have folks in France, folks in Germany, the economic leaders of the European Union uh, pushing a different tone where we need to kind of settle things down, calm them down. We're going to work with China regardless of of what the US uh, stance is. So I think the the question here is, is containment even possible considering the size of China and the scope of their economy, like you're mentioning, the development of their AI, their technology? How can we say we're not a partner at all with China when they're our largest trading partner? There's a lot here to unpack. We use the word partner to describe someone that we trade with. That does not mean partner in the sense of a partner in terms of policy cooperation. Those are two very different things. So when we when we say China is a trading partner, that's very difficult than say that's very different than saying China is a partner, and that's like uh, Ronald Reagan once joked that uh, the difference between a republic and a people's republic is the difference between a jacket and a straight jacket. So just because you have the same word in two different terms does not mean that it means the same thing. And so in this case, China is our trading partner because we call, we use that word to mean anyone that we trade with. But that does not mean that China is a partner in the more general sense or a, you know, a, a, on, on policy cooperation. Because so as for the idea, the sort of implicit idea that trade links create political alignment of interests, that's very much not true. Uh, on the eve of the Great War of World War I, um, Germany and the UK were each other's largest trading partners. And the volume of trade between those countries was quite high. And so... The idea that this will prevent war is wrong. Um, just just been proven wrong. You're right that things are different than the Soviet Union. There's you know, China is not the Soviet Union. Our strategy toward them should not be the same. Uh, and that's that's absolutely right. But trade links do not make alignment of interests. They just don't. 
Um, and so obviously separating our trade entirely from China and cutting China out of all of our supply chains and cutting us out of all China supply chains would be extremely disruptive. Um, but it's been slowly happening. So, so the, the China made content of China's products has been rising and rising because, uh, you know, China wanted that to happen. And that's been a policy since the early 2010s and, um, actually since before that under, under Hu Jintao. So that's been happening. And essentially there is some decoupling happening. I don't know how much it will, it will continue, but I think that we in, in things like semiconductors certainly will. But it's it's an active area of contention, and I think some of the if you want to look at the people who are most most opposed to this, it's going to be you're going to look at the financial industry and the financial sector who want to invest in China and make a return from Chinese assets, and they're probably not going to be able to make a return they expect, but they are pushing pretty strong now for you know engagement, open trade, blah blah bullshit, and the and if you see the pro China people, uh, you know who are sort of have retreated a bit from the hard line that they were taking, you know, uh, uh, six months ago and are now trying to, to um, kind of strike a, you know, more balanced tone. You see them going after the idea that China is investable. China is a safe place to put your money. And this is their line now. And it's going to reel in some big fish like Goldman Sachs, which stopped really having much of an edge in the great financial crisis, you know, generation ago. And is looking for places to make easy money and will be the dumb money, uh, just plowing money into Chinese assets, giving China de facto bailout. So this is it's it's a bad idea for us to invest in China because we're bailing them out of their shitty real estate uh, sector. China is our is our rival. It is not accurately described as a partner. It is accurately described as a rival. Uh, It's sort of on the bubble of being accurately described as an enemy. Certainly the attitude of the wolf warrior diplomats that China unleashed. Uh, and only recently started to rein in, um, has been that the United States and China are enemies. If you look at how CCP leaders talk behind closed doors, well, not even behind closed doors, just in official communications, whatever, it's very stilted communication, but we've now got a lot of people working on parsing that, like Rush Doshi, uh, Tanner Greer, and people like that. Um, they they say we're an enemy. That's how they talk. The, the question or the concern that I'm having is it seems really black and white. We should be focusing on maximum containment, isn't there a potential negative consequence of pushing too hard on decoupling? Obviously, the uh, domestic economic concerns, but taking putting those aside for one second. Uh, one argument is if we push for you know this stringent containment uh, strategy where we're ratcheting up sanctions, where we are um, ultimately uh, the full economic decoupling or as close as we can get, that we are going to push China into overtly undermining the Brentwood system, creating their own currency, trying to pick off countries to basically create a parallel system, and in doing so, weakening the dollar um, and and hurting the United States in, in our global standing. Isn't there some nuance here, uh, or is it really black and white that there are enemies? So fuck them. We need to do maximum containment. Well, I'd say neither of those. So on the in terms of the the oh my god, China's going to replace the dollar. They're not going to and. Uh, if they started to, it would be kind of a good thing. The reserve, having the reserve currency, you know, strong dollar. We use the word strong, but what it actually means is that our export is are weak. We need to export more, and the fact that we're the reserve currency that everybody uses us for their finances, holds reserves in our currency, etc. That is that is detrimental to us. That's not good for us. We cannot shoulder this global burden of being a reserve currency, and so we should want the dollar to weaken a bit, and so we should want some alternatives to the dollar to to emerge. Um, realistically that the alternative is going to be the Euro, not the Yuan. 
Because in order to do this, China will have to essentially give up managing the yuan for the ability to like pump up exports or support imports or whatever it wants. China will have to give that up and basically float the yuan because the reserve currency is pretty much floating by definition, right? If China wants to be this reserve currency. So go ahead, China, do that. Go. You won't. They won't, but they should. Um, and I hope they do, but they won't. Um, so that's so I'm not worried about that at all. In fact, I want it to happen, and I'm just convinced that it won't, unfortunately. So, but um the the idea of containment, I think that China is not possible it is not possible or desirable to contain China the way we did the Soviet Union. Um, in fact, I think that the way we contained the Soviet Union was probably a lot of overkill. I think that it led us to support a lot of unsavory regimes, such as the Pakistani regime that killed all the Bangladeshis in 1971 and such as the Indonesians who, you know, murdered 500,000 suspected communists and all this stuff. That was, this is bad. We shouldn't have done that. We, you know, our containment was some aspects of containment were a smart strategy, such as deterrence. That was good. But the Vietnam war, how smart was that? That was dumb. Not only should we, will we not contain China that way? And and that's impossible. We shouldn't have even contained the Soviet union that way. That was, you know, we made a lot of mistakes and got a lot of people, innocent people killed uh, with our, with our mistakes and stupidity. Um, But hopefully we've learned now, but, but that said, yes, China is too integrated into the global economy for us to contain them the same way we would, we would the USSR. Um, They are, uh, and, uh, and it's not about integration with us. It's about integration with Europe, with Japan, with all these, with all of our allies, like China is important economically to them. So what we will do, John, is what you said before is to focus on a few strategic sectors uh, to push decoupling. So we're going to decouple in semiconductors, in AI, in telecom equipment, uh, which is you know used for spying, which we don't want. Um, that's the whole Huawei saga. And I've, I've been writing about those. I've been writing about these like strategic sectors. And I think those are the sectors we're going to decouple in. And we're going to push decoupling. And I don't think we're going to demand that like, you know, laptops stop being packaged together in China or something. Like, we're not going to demand that, like, furniture stop being made in China. We're not going to demand that, like, rabbit treats stop being made in China. Although I do worry about whatever additives they're putting in there. The idea that, like, we don't want anything made in China anywhere. We're going to force China to iron curtain itself off from the world. That's not a real idea. That's not a thing that can happen, right? That's a thing people talk about, but this is not a thing that will or can happen. Um, instead it'll be more about the commanding heights of technology. It'll be techno decoupling and high-tech industries and our attempt to deny China the ability to make those high-tech products. And I do not know how successful that will be. The, the chip, uh, our, our efforts to deny them chip making, uh, industry have proven far more successful than I thought. I give the floor to His Excellency, Mr. Wang Yi, State Counselor and Minister of Foreign Affairs of China. Madam President, Mr. Secretary General, I thank Foreign Minister Kelowna for convening today's ministerial meeting. And I thank Secretary General Guterres for his briefing. China's position on Ukraine is consistent and clear. President Xi Jinping pointed out that the sovereignty, territorial integrity of all countries should be respected. The purposes and the principles of the UN Charter should be observed. 
The reasonable security concerns of all countries should be taken seriously, and all efforts that could help resolve the crisis should be supported. We're talking a lot in this conversation about all the ways in which China are actually quite weak. Talking about how the effort to cut them off from the advanced semiconductors has been quite effective. We talked about how much trouble that they've had during this phase of zero COVID. We talked about how the Belt and Road was a bit of a flop, um, and uh, we talked about how they're not really in a position to replace the role of the U.S. and some of the factors of the framework of the global economy. Right. So. Another thing you mentioned, which we kind of also want to bring up, was how they're edging off a little bit from wolf warrior diplomacy about how they've shifted some of the most bellicose figures away from the heights of uh, foreign policy communication. Um, We're also seeing how they are at least uh, cooperative at a minimum level with uh, U.S. sanctions against Russia, and they're demonstrating distance from Russia and a little bit more of a... um, alignment with the Ukrainian way of thinking about sovereignty in the former Soviet Union space. Of course, they stand to benefit from that because of Central Asia issues. When we see China putting out a bit of an olive branch or a bit of an off-ramp opportunity and kind of an invitation to slow down some of the antagonism, and we see them demonstrating all of these signs of weakness that we're noticing, do you think that we should be trusting that there is an opportunity to slow things down, kind of like we did in the um, late 1980s with the Soviet Union? Or do you think that we should approach all of this with a position of sincere and deep mistrust about China's calculations? It's good for China to back off the wolf warrior thing. There is little evidence so far that their internal, the way they talk about this internally has changed, that they have decided to you know, be more cooperative with the United States uh, in, in general, there's, there's no evidence of this yet. And, you know, people, they're still saying pretty nationalistic stuff behind closed doors. As far as we can tell, they're a bit opaque, right? It's hard to know what they're, what they're really talking about. And of course there's a diversity of viewpoints within China in general, I'd say that it's, it's, it's absolutely false that China has taken a pro Ukraine, um, stance here. And I would say that Ukraine, which has gone very far out of its way to avoid alienating China and to try to not to offend China uh, to the point of banning Taiwanese observers from coming to watch how they fight Russia uh, to the point of basically banning Taiwanese people from Ukraine because, you know, on the, on the urge to stay in China's good graces, I'd say that even Ukraine is starting to realize that, that China is, is essentially a Russian ally, a Russian partner in the true sense of the word. So I would say that China has has avoided fully committing to helping Russia and has been wary of helping Russia and is you know not fully committed and I would say that the um the China Russia axis has been prevented from being turned into a full alliance by Russia being stupid and failed. Uh you know Russia basically sucked so hard at its you know, at everything that China is starting to is is worrying for its own self interested reasons about being shackled to a corpse, as they said of Germany and Austria Hungary in World War One. So I would say that China's you know taken a couple small steps in the right direction, but not enough to sort of change the trajectory yet. And there's no indication that their fundamental approach toward us of antagonism has changed. And it may change, but these things don't change in in 
you know, overnight, right? The only, the only reason, the only way this changes overnight is in the middle of essentially a war when you're, you, you flip alliances to fight against a, a common enemy. Obviously, when Hitler invaded Stalin, that was a big flip. We allied with Stalin against Hitler. We allied with uh, Maoist China against the Soviet Union in a de facto way. Um, we were de facto allies, not true allies, uh, but, but de facto nonetheless, and our alliance was effective against Soviet Russia. Part of the uh, backdrop to what we were talking about earlier, the Bangladesh War of Independence and the U.S. role, was to build up to that visit to China, right? And Kissinger just published a new book where he was talking about this, about how part of the reason that they support Pakistan was because Pakistan was the conduit between the U.S. and China at that time. So it wasn't exactly overnight. It was actually a few years of buildup. But some of the you know most immoral actions that the U.S. took during the Cold War was as part of, of that project. Absolutely right. And think about the immorality of what we did in World War II by allying with Stalin. That was bad. Certainly wasn't good. It wasn't good. With I mean, but it was bad, but it was the lesser of two evils, right? Like Stalin obviously had to beat Hitler for the world to be okay. If Hitler had beat Stalin and gotten control of the entire like Soviet Union plus Europe, that would have been quite bad. <laughs> um, and then maybe got nukes. I don't know. But then so, so allying with Stalin was the right thing to do, even though it required us to accede to some horrible things. I believe that our de facto alliance with China in the Cold War, in the later Cold War, was, was a good idea. We've allied with China before, but not just against the Soviet Union, but against Japan in World War II. Um, and then even before that, the United States was significantly like opposed to like European powers colonizing China in the colonial era. So there is a history of cooperation there. We fought each other in the Korean War. but you know, there, there have been, we've cooperated more than we fought. And so I think there's opportunity for that again, but I think that ultimately the ball is in China's court. You know, the, the, these tensions are not being driven by us. We maintain the strategy of constructive engagement, um, and openness all the way through Obama, all the way through 20, the year 2016, by which time it had already been many years since China basically decided that they wanted to displace us. Uh, and you can learn that if you read um, Rush Doshi's The Long Game. Rush Doshi, basically, it's an extremely boring and extremely informative, helpful book, um, you, which you should read, even though it's painful, um, because he just goes through like every single official Chinese communication speech and says, aha, this means that, this, and just like catalogs all these phrases. It's like um, Alan Turing cracking code or something. It's it's basically, yes, China made a decision to displace the United States rather than, than uh, you know, be our buddy. Uh, probably in the 2000s. In the 90s, it was probably still up in the air. If you ever wanted to take a polar bear home from the zoo with you, the Great Pyrenees might be the next best thing. Well, the Great Pyrenees is a big dog with an equally big heart. Pairs have been serving as guardians for their flocks for thousands of years. The Great Pyrenees dog's goal in life is to protect sheep, goats, livestock, people, children, and any real or imaginary predators that may intrude on your personal space. Oh yeah, not to mention to give, give, and give unconditional love. He has a strong build of beautiful thick coat and he exudes elegance and majesty one fine look and you can see the intelligence and steady temperament that many seek in a good family dog well, there are top 10 most interesting facts about the great pyrenees i told my friend who is a big bunny owner he owns two bunnies with his uh girlfriend and their names are matthias 
and dash. So I am on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? I own a 120 pound guard dog. Um, so help me understand the value of having a bunny as a pet and why are they so awesome? Well, what is your guard dog guard? Guards me in Washington, D.C. <laughs> From what? <laughs> From uh, people that shouldn't be coming in the house. From, you know, if you're out at, at night walking the dog at 11 p.m., it's not necessarily the safest area where I live. Justin is preparing for the Chinese invasion of Washington, D.C., <laughs> in which his dog will Dear play Lord. a central role. <laughs> Whether it be China that invades us or India, my dog will be there. No, it's now the year of the rabbit uh, in the lunar calendar, right? It is. So it the is. dog will, will be there to combat the uh, the eastern the rabbit, rabbit invasion. In that sense, yeah. I will say that rabbits will not guard you from the perils of the night. Um, they will warn you. They will thump to warn you of danger, but they will themselves not combat the danger. I will say they can provide about a 10-second warning on earthquakes. That's interesting. So, so those are the reasons to... To own a rabbit or? <laughs> no, the reason to have a rabbit is because you like more. a fluffy bunny. You want to pet and cuddle and play with a fluffy bunny. That is the reason. It is not for military purposes. I mean, aren't the uh, the rabbits are absolutely brutal in uh, Watership Down, aren't they? They are. It's, it's... I mean, they have the rabbits have a have a militaristic, uh, homicidal kind of side to them. Well, they do. It's. I think it's probably because, well... That is a bit realistic, but really, I mean, it was, it came from the author's uh, World War II paratrooper experiences behind the lines. There's really no, there's no militaristic fascist rabbit society, but I will say that rabbits are territorial creatures like, like any, like herbivores, like horses, basically, and they will like bite each other to assert dominance. Um, and so you have to be very careful about, like, you don't do rabbit play dates unless there's a large number of rabbits. In that sense, Watership Down can be realistic. When I introduced my rabbits, they did bite each other at first. Uh, but now they love each other very much and cuddle constantly. I would not use Watership Down as an accurate portrayal of rabbit behavior at all, but it is fun anyway. 